Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. So if you'd like to turn in the Bible, we'll get there in just a moment here. It's in Joshua chapter 7. Philip Yancey, and you've heard us talk about this, says that he's gone all over the world, and in his international travels, one thing has become very clear to him, and that is God goes wherever he's wanted. And so we've thought here at Dayspring is, well, we want him to come here. Now, in one very real sense, he's here. He's always been here. Uh, This is his place. In another sense, sometimes he chooses to come in a special way in a manifest way, in a way that there's no denying God has come. We, we believe that's the kind of thing he's done throughout human history. Uh, for instance, at the, uh, at the end of the book of Exodus, it says that the glory of God filled the tabernacle. What an incredible moment that must have been. Yeah, well, he's, he'd been here all along. Yeah, I know. But for some reason, he chose that moment to come. And I mean, you talk about explosive power, explosive purity, explosive destiny. And there are other times, of course, uh, even in American history, we've had touches of God that it just seems he comes spectacularly in this moment. And so we just want to be in the ready position for that. We can't manipulate it. We can't force him to come. All that we say is, it looks like in human history, he shows up where he's wanted. And we want to want him. So one of the things we've been doing here in this church is for the last 21 days, this is the 21st day, we have been in fasting and prayer. Many of us have come, and I mean, you talk about encouraging. I am exceedingly encouraged with what has happened on 6 a.m. on weekdays and and 9 a.m. on Saturdays. We've had 20 to 30 of us show up and just cry out to God. It hasn't been something that's orchestrated. That's not the format we've chosen. We just get around, walk around, walk around the camp. Tim and I actually walked around the, uh, the church several times. And the day I didn't show up, he says, I did it twice without you. So anyway, I... A little irritated by that. But anyway, he went out there and, and walked twice around without uh, what I was pastoral leadership. And uh, that's the kind of thing. We just want to say, Lord, we're putting ourselves in position for you to do something wonderful. And so we are going to, I'm still kind of thinking about this. We'll, we'll think about it some more. But probably we're going to be doing this 21-day thing twice a year. And we'll do it at the beginning of the year, typically. That'd be in January. And then we're going to do it at the beginning of the school year. So that will probably be the way the school year keeps getting ratcheted back. It's probably in June you know, this year. They actually do kind of start the end of July now. So probably be in August. So we'll probably do it those, those times of the year, January and then in August. And then we've kind of asked ourselves our question, should we keep it going between the 21-day emphases? And so we're still thinking through that. But it's likely that one of those days of the week will continue to show up here at 6 a.m., and just continue to cry out to God and keep putting ourselves in the ready position for whatever he would like. And I'm just so grateful for a church that believes in prayer, so grateful for a church that believes it's important that uh, people stand in the gap and intercede for the church, for the community, for the nation, and uh, we want to be that kind of church. Sometimes we show God whether he is wanted or not by our response to his directives. So it tells us to do something. If we don't do it, it's obvious we really don't want him around. Because this is a God that if you want him around, he'll tell you what to do. And you need to obey. And the lack of obedience can mean we put ourselves in sort of a perilous 
position with him. So I'd like to go to one of the places of Scripture where it's obvious that something went wrong that I think we can learn from very positively. And that was Joshua 7. This is the story of Achan. Uh, he uh, was an interesting character and some, someone we can learn a lot from. Let me tell you a little bit about the history of Israel and what led us to this moment. You remember that in the book of Genesis, it starts off with Adam and Eve, but it ends up with Joseph. And so in that time, we recognize that Joseph has uh, been placed by God's grace in a position of power in Egypt. And that's probably pretty good because his family is starving in Canaan. So he says, hey, family, come, come to Egypt, and we'll make sure we feed you and take care of you. And then they kind of look around and say, hey, as long as they're here, should they live, live in a particular position in Egypt? And they say, yeah, land of Goshen. So they went down to Goshen, and they began having babies and grandbabies and great-grandbabies, and pretty soon they've got quite a group of people. Such a group that's a little intimidating to Pharaoh. Now, it comes along with Pharaoh later on, and he says, I'm intimidated by that. Let's enslave them and make them do hard labor for our purposes. And so that's what happens, and they are enslaved them in Egypt. So one day, God says, enough of that. I'm going to get them out of that predicament with a guy named Moses. And so that's an incredible story. We're not take the time to tell all these stories, but it's an incredible story. And Moses leads them out of Egypt and goes across the Red Sea, if you remember the story, and then they find themselves in a desert. And they go get the law, uh, and that's basically 613 laws that God wants to instruct them with by saying, these are the things I want you to live by. Reorder your lives by these laws. But then what happens is it's time to take the promised land because God says, I want to get you out of Egypt, take you to your promised land. And instead of going and seizing that land, possessing that land, they flinch. And they think that whoever's in that promised land right now, they're bigger than us. The cities are fortified. We can't do it. And they say, we're not going to go. So instead, God says, well, every day you are looking over that land, I'm going to make you wander in the wilderness for a year. Well, they've already put two years in, 38 more years, and they're wandering the wilderness. Then there comes a time where God says, enough of that. It's time now. We got a new generation now. Let's go get the land, the promised land. So they go up, they cross the Jordan River. First battle they have to win is Jericho. So they got to go into Jericho. They're going to go in, and it's going to be quite an ordeal. You can read about that in the Bible. But one of the things God says is, we take nothing for ourselves from Jericho. You're going to run in to some fancy-looking clothes. No, not for you. They're to be destroyed. You're going to run into some gold. And you're going to say, well, instead of it just perishing, let me take some. No, says God. Hey, we're going to look at some silver. It'd be crazy just to leave it. No, says God. Nothing for you. Well, everyone did just like God wanted. Everyone except Achan. So we pick up the story in chapter 7. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is the sons of Israel... No, 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 not the sons of Israel, just one guy. But that's what's important about understanding their life together is when someone is living in sin, 
that sin can be a reflection on the whole group. And God's going to make it so this time. That sin isn't just yours. It belongs to the whole nation. So here we go. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully regarding the things designated for destruction. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the designated things. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned, not just against Achan, but against the sons of Israel. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go and spy out the land. So the men went up and they spied out Ai. They returned to Jericho and said, listen, listen, listen. Do not have all the people go up. We got this. Have only about two, 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not trouble everybody. There's just a few of them. So about 3,000 men from the people went up, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck and killed 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far of Shebarim and struck them on the mountainside and the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Joshua is horrified. He tore his clothes and he fell to the ground on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel. They put dust on their heads and they said, Oh, Lord God, why did you ever bring us, this people, across the Jordan only to hand us over to them, to the Amorites, to eliminate us? If only been willing to live beyond the Jordan. Verse 13, stand up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves tomorrow because the Lord your, your God has said this. There are things designated for destruction in your midst, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you have removed the designated things from your midst. Let's go to verse 20. There, they went on a search. For these things. And Achan finally answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord and the God of Israel, and this is what I did. I saw among the spoils a beautiful robe, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, and I wanted them. And I took them, and behold, they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Jesus teaches from this. And what are the implications of this? for Dayspring Community Church. Help us to understand. One sin hidden away. Amen. So this is kind of what we're looking at, y'all. There was a hidden sin. Inside a tent, probably underneath the sleeping bag. Wasn't hurting anybody. But God said no. What it ends up doing is Achan dies. His family dies. 36 men die. The nation is at a disadvantage because of one sin hidden away. And I'm thinking today, how many of us are holding on to something that we're not supposed to be holding on to and thereby causing us grief, our family grief, our church grief, maybe the whole nation grief? Now, you're thinking, well, I, I can't imagine that being the case. Achan couldn't believe it either. And yet, it was. So I'm just asking myself right now, is there anything in my life, I'm asking for us, is there anything in our lives? So two things that are too often in our life's battle that we grab hold of and we hide in our proverbial tents, two things, 
There's got to be more than two, but I want to talk about what I think are the two top ones, and that is, number one, unconfessed sin, and number two, unforgiveness toward our brothers and our sisters. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a huge word there that's a very small word there, and it's if. You see, if we don't, there's no promise here that he'll be faithful and just to forgive our sin. If we don't confess it, there's no promise here that we'll be cleansed if we don't confess it. There's no promise that unrighteousness won't just keep coming at us and coming at us and coming at us if we don't confess our sin to Almighty God. Unconfessed sin. James talks about the manner of confession. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We'll get to that here in just a minute. Just imagine you go out to the country and uh, visiting a friend's house. And uh, we'll just put me in that house. Uh, Matt, Matt is out at Bob's house. And uh, Bob says, why don't you stay here? And man, it's a nice room. And one of the great things about it is out in the country, so no lights. And uh, honestly, I'm in this room, and it's totally dark and great night's sleep. Can't even see the hand in front of my face. Beautiful. But then I kind of think, you know, it feels kind of like morning right now. And maybe I ought to get out of bed. Problem is I can't find my way around the room because I can't see the hand in front of my face. It's dark. It's, it's like night in here. So I call out to Bob. I said, Bob, I need some light in here, man. He said, well, you went to bed. You saw where the curtain was. Just open up the curtain. I said, that's how I get light is a curtain. He said, yeah, there's light outside. There's the sun outside. You're going to love it. Right across the lake. The sun's coming up. So I, I kind of make my way over to what I think is the curtain. Sure enough, I feel around there it is. And I open it up. And I'm blinded by the light. Woo! It's beautiful. Sun's coming up across the lake. And all of a sudden, I can see everything inside of that room now. If you open up the curtain, the sun will shine in. If you don't open up the curtain, the sun's still shining, but it's not going to shine in to that room. And that's confession of sin, y'all is we recognize we've got to confess our sin, and we've got to go to God. And I'm just going to tell you, at the end of this service today, I'd like to see a full altar of people coming up here and doing any number of things. You can pray for whatever you want. We've done that for 21 days now. We show up at this, in this room. We say, here's the prayer agenda. But if you don't like the agenda, just pray for whatever you want. Go for it. Just go. Go. Pray. And that's going to be what we have with this altar. But I'd like at least some of us to say, God's moving on my heart to confess sin that I think maybe I've kept hidden. I took it into my tent, brought it into my room, and I didn't want light to shine on it. I didn't want anybody to see it. And therefore, I buried it in my tent underneath my sleeping bag. And God, through this sermon, God, through the predicament of my life, has brought me to the moment where he says, enough. And some of us deal with some stuff that we've got to confess today. Some of us deal with anger. Enough. Some of us deal with gossip. 
we got big mouths. And we love to use them behind other people's back. Enough. Some of us have been exceedingly dishonest at work. Enough. Some of us have been very unfaithful in our marriages. Now, I think you can be unfaithful in any number of ways. But however that unfaithfulness comes, the Lord today says, enough. Some of us just have bad attitudes. We've had them for a long time. And today, the Lord says, enough. I want you to get it out of your tent. I want you to get it out from underneath the sleeping bag. I want you to go to the curtain and open it wide and let me shine in. Because if you do that, it's going to be a good day. Now, I want to suggest that James' passage is pretty important. I think you need to come up here today and confess your sin, whatever that might be. And it's for a number of reasons. Number one, you do it for you and your relationship with God. If you have a sin in your life and you're trying to keep it cloaked and you're trying to say, I'm not going to pay much attention to that because I'm going to ignore it, that's the same thing as hiding. And what you want to do is to have a full-orbed, unburdened, curtain-open relationship with Jesus Christ. But you can't have it with unconfessed sin. You need to come up here and confess it. And then there's something else that has to happen because I believe James is right. And James, if you remember, says... Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. I, uh, in one of Richard Foster's books, he says, uh, I decided to take that seriously. And so I, I did one day. I made a list of my sins. I'm thinking, for some of us, that would mean a couple books, you know, page by page. Let me just list. He did it. As far back as he could remember in his life, he listed all of his sins. See, I'd never done this before. He listed all of his sins, and then he went to a trusted friend. And he sat down in front of the trusted friend and said, I want to read you this list, maybe explain most of them, some of them I'm not going to go into, but I'm just going to tell you. If you've got any questions, ask me, and I'll, I'm going to be more than happy to add. So he goes down the whole list. And I mean, it was a gut-wrenching time. It took some time to do it. At the end, he looks up, the guy looks at him, whew, and he takes the list, He's about ready to put it back into his briefcase. And his friend says, I want that piece of paper. Foster didn't know what he knew, but he trusted him. So he says, here. And the guy tore it up and burned it. Ah, I like that. Remember that passage of Scripture? Lo, I will remember your sins no more. He burned it. And Foster says, in that moment, I felt release. And y'all... You need to not only come up here and confess to God, you need to find someone in the body of Christ you trust. You need to ask them, I need for you to hear my sins, and if you feel like this is a genuine moment, I need for you to pray for me. And if you don't trust anybody in this congregation, find somebody outside the congregation. If you want to use me, more than happy. Anybody on our staff, we're going to be more than happy. Any leader in this church, any board member, just find someone, and someone here is going to be dumb enough to say, that's nobody else's business. That's just between me and God. That's not what the Bible says. It's not between you and God. Listen, ache and sin destroyed 36 other guys. It held back victory against I. And who knows how many others would have died if finally that's not found out and brought to light. It's not just about you, you all. 
Your sin hurts you. Your sin hurts your marriage. Your sin. He said, no, no, no. This had nothing to do with my marriage. Yeah, I'm going to tell you anyway. If you've got hidden sin in your life, it hurts you. It can hurt your marriage. It can hurt your family. It can hurt your church. It can keep your church from having revival. It can keep your church from being evangelistically effective out there. It can keep your church from any number of things. You've just got to come clean. And you come clean before God. And then perhaps up here, God could say, now, I'm going to give you the face of the person that I want you to go confess your sins to, particularly that sin that you're keeping quiet, trying to ignore, that you've got hidden underneath your sleeping bag. I'm going to give you the face of the person you need to go to. And if they don't do what Foster's friend did, you need to ask them to do it. If you felt this is genuine, I need for you as a priest, because we believe in the priesthood of believers. Listen, Catholic Church has priests, but we believe in the priesthood of believers. That is, Mr. Henry serves as a priest to me, and he does. I can go to him, and I can confess my sins, and I can share with him. I have that relationship with any number of people in here that I can go to and say, here is where I'm at. I'm sorry. I need for you to pray for me. And you need to have that kind of relationship with people in this church, or at least beyond the church, but with somebody, because guess what? The hand isn't a hand if it's apart from the rest of the body. That hand is attached to the arm, it's attached to the shoulder, it's attached to this body, and the hand needs this heart. This hand ain't much without this heart. This hand ain't much without this brain. I admit it's not much, but it's something, and it needs it. Hey, y'all, that's, that's the way this thing rolls. So don't ever say that great American heresy as pure and unadulterated doctrine for yourself. That is, ain't nobody else's business, just me and God. No, no, no. Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. Now, I like the next part of it. The prayer, it's kind of weird. What is this next sentence? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. What is that? I think what that is is the righteous person has just confessed his sins to someone else. That person's prayed for them. You are now healed. Now you're a righteous person, and your prayer is powerful. What if unconfessed sin is keeping people from being healed, miraculously healed, or people getting raised from the dead, or any number of things happening because of your sin. Wouldn't you want to deal with it? What if that sin is hurting your marriage? What if that sin is hurting? Get a load of this now. What if that sin ends up hurting your great-great-grandchildren? People you might never, ever, ever see, but it's hurting them, and you don't know it, and you won't know it, but it nonetheless hurts them. Wouldn't you like to take care of that today? We're going to have an altar here where you can come and confess those sins and just say, Lord, show me the face of the person. I need to go confess these two as well. Now let's talk not just about unconfessed sin. Let's talk about unforgiveness <coughs> towards brothers and sisters. I, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. I, I've watched a little bit of it and just decided to turn it off. I, did, I haven't watched it. But uh, we, we've talked about here before the, the film Revenant. Uh, that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. Anybody seen this movie? Uh, in, interesting because it's based on history. And I always kind of like movies that are based on history. It's about a fur trapper who is attacked. That's the DiCaprio character. 
He's attacked and severely wounded by a grizzly bear while hunting. So his friends, instead of coming to his aid and helping him lick his wounds and carrying him to the next town, just say, eh, he's dead, and they leave him for dead. And they murder his son before his eyes. Now, the movie is about this guy named Hugh Glass going 80 miles after he rises from the dead. He goes 80 miles and gets his revenge. Whew, that's got to be a delicious movie. Anybody here want revenge? I mean, delicious revenge. I've often said, not often, but from time to time, I've got spiritual gifts. You know, my spiritual gifts are communication and, and teaching and uh, revenge. I don't like that about me, but I've got to tell you, I've got a long memory, and Jesus wants me to heal me of that long memory. He says, no, Matt, we've got to nip that in the bud, because if revenge is needed, I want you to know a clear teaching is this, revenge is mine not yours. If someone needs revenge, I'll get them. You don't have to. Your job is to forgive and forget and to love. Well, so this movie, for whatever it's worth, isn't about revenge, uh, not when you read the real historical account. Now, that's what the movie is about, but the historical account is he ends up traveling all that way and ends up forgiving it's a forgiveness thing. And one of the guys says, who's writing a, 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 a movie blog, he says, is forgiveness too boring for Hollywood? And I got to admit, I don't really want to watch a movie that, where the guy goes and forgives him. I want that guy to go, get him! Get him! That's my personality, get him! Yeah, and the Lord says, man, that's not a good personality. That ain't, that's not the way we rock and roll around here. no. Hugh Glass did the right thing. Let's go find those guys and find a way to reconcile and forgive and put this thing behind. But, but Lord, he was left for dead. Even so. His son's dead. Even so. And at the end of the day, Hollywood won't teach us forgiveness. That's why we go to Scripture. And we allow this God of forgiveness... I, Anybody remember a guy named Simon Peter? I don't know if that rings a bell or not. Remember that day when Peter goes up and says, uh, Master, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Now, my, Bill, my friend Bill Urey has written a book on forgiveness, and so uh, this teaching comes from him. But Bill goes back into the oral tradition. Is in, when, when Peter says seven, he's done something really great there. Because this is what the tradition said, and and I quote from the old tradition of the Jews. If a man transgresses one time, forgive him. If a man transgresses two times, forgive him. If a man transgresses three times, forgive him. If a man transgresses four times, do not forgive him. So, the Jewish teaching was, forgive a guy three times. For the same offense, you bet even for the same offense, three times. So what Peter's done here in his talking with Jesus is he has taken that law and he says, let's do even better than our tradition. Our tradition says three times. I'm going to multiply it by two and add one and get it to that perfect number we always talk about, seven. Seven times? 
And Peter's thinking, touchdown. Jesus is going to look at me and say, Peter, way to go. Seven times? That's why you're number one in this pack. I like you. And Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus says, 70 times seven. As far as your eye can see, that's how long we're going to forgive. That's how long we're going to forgive. That's how we're going to forgive. Because that's the kind of people Jesus makes us. A forgiving people. Forgiveness is a whole lot more radical than three times two plus one. Let me tell you how radical it is. We're about ready to go into Good Friday. And uh, Good Friday is all about the cross. When we come here on Friday, by the way, sign up for that Passover meal. Uh, there's a limit to how many people we can take. You want to be in. There, there comes a time we say, well, sorry, we just can't do anymore. Uh, it's kind of involved. But the Passover meal is something that the Jews have done ever since the Exodus. And they have a final form. We're going to go to that final form the way they do it today. But so many of those things they were doing at the time of Jesus. So it's a beautiful thing. We're going to do that on Wednesday night of Holy Week. You need to sign up for that. You want to be here. You're going to like it. You're going to learn some things. That the things they do at that Seder, they call it, the Last Supper, the thing they do at the Passover Seder, the things they still do today, just shout Jesus. You will love it when you come. Well, we're going to move past the Seder, and we're going to enter into Friday night. And uh, we've done a number of things on Friday night, tenebrae service and sometimes just communion, but we're going to have a communion service. And at that communion service, it's going to be very simple. We're going to go from 6 to about 6.45, and then Celebrate Recovery is going to come in afterwards. They're going to have a beautiful time that night, but it's going to be very short, very brief. But y'all, short and brief shouldn't say this isn't one of the most remarkable points in human history. When Jesus absorbed your sins, my sins. J.D. Greer says, I remember a Muslim asking me, I used to live in Southeast Asia, says, Muslim asked me, why would God need someone to die in order to forgive our sin? I mean, the Father in heaven, he wants to forgive our sin. Why does his son have to die in order for me to be forgiven? I don't get that. Why does he operate that way? J.D. Greer says, this is how I answered him. Choosing to forgive somebody means that you are agreeing to absorb the cost of the injustice that they've done. So, I don't know, imagine you stole my car and you wrecked my car. By the way, this has happened. I have wrecked a friend's car before. So he says, you don't have insurance, and I didn't. You don't have the money to pay for it, and I didn't. I'm going to tell you what we finally did there. You can ask me after the service, I'll tell you. Didn't kind of roll out quite like J.D. Greer's, but like, okay, you, you, you have a car, you have a car wreck, you don't have insurance, you don't have the money to pay for it. So J.D. Greer says, what are my choices here? I can make you pay it. I could haul you before the judge and request a court-mandated payment plan. If you're foolish enough to steal my $1.5 million Ferrari, he says, no, I don't own a Ferrari, but let's say you're that dumb, then you'd always be in my debt. You're never going to pay that back. But he says, I have another choice. 
What am I choosing to do if I say, I forgive you? I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong. I'll have to pay the price of having the car fixed, probably pay for a higher insurance later on. You have no debt to pay. Not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. Not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance, even though you deserve the opposite. Y'all, that's what Jesus did for you on the cross. I was just reading with a 5Q discipleship group this week. I was, we were in Matthew, and it's just horrifying every time I read it that they slapped God. God emptied himself, it says. God became a man. He said, bye-bye to all the prerogatives of heaven, and he became man. It says he emptied himself. He became nothing. Nonetheless, he was God. And on that day, way late at an illegal trial, we slapped him. We spat on him. We tore his flesh. The worst thing of all, all those things, is the fourth one. We mocked him. We made fun of him. You say, well, not me. I didn't do that stuff. Every time you sin, you do that stuff. And the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what Jesus chose to do is absorb that mockery. Put it on himself. That spittle running down his face is on me now. Let's stay on me. The laughter, the derision, the blood. He says, it's all mine. Austin led us in an incredible hymn. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Y'all, he says then, follow me. And if you don't forgive other people, you mock him. If you don't forgive other people, you spit on him. If you don't forgive other people, you take a whip right across his back. Because he says, I've absorbed your sin. Now, I know people have done you wrong. And I can only imagine the stories that could come from this congregation right now. You have no idea how bad they did me. But it doesn't matter. You need to forgive them. Preacher, you, you have no idea what you're saying. And I don't. But Jesus does. And what he asks you to do right now is to say, by God's grace, because it can't happen any other way, he's going to give you all the help you need, all the grace you need to say, that person that did that wicked and horrible thing to me, I forgive them, I love them. And if somehow vengeance is coming their way, it won't be by me, God will take care of it. All I know is, Lo, I will remember their sin 
no more. Now, can I tell you what's going to happen? You'll remember it. And when that moment comes, where it comes to your brain, you're going to say, stop it, Satan. By faith, by faith, I decided to forgive them and forget their sin. I am claiming that moment by faith right now. I'm not going back there. By faith. What we're going to do right now is have a time where we come up to the altar and simply pray. And if you'd like to stay seated, Right now you can, but some of you are going to rise up and you're going to come to this altar and there's two issues that Jesus wants us to deal with this morning. Gary said something during his prayer the other day. I was standing right here and he was standing right there and he said something in his prayer. Man, I'm changing my sermon this Sunday. And Gary, I did it because I think Jesus wanted me to based on your prayer. And that is, we have unconfessed sin and some of us need to forgive other people. For your unconfessed sin, God's going to say, come up and confess it. And then I'm going to show you the face of the person you need to go confess that to as well. And that person will pray for you. You ask them to pray for you if they don't. Pray for me and be my priest in this moment. And then some of us need to come up here and just say, oh God, give me the grace to forgive that person. I absorb their sin their wrongdoing by your grace. So Jesus, the service is over.